0: If you want to be with me, baby, there's a price to pay. It's the Ringer MLB Show. And I'm your host, Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. As always, we are part of The Ringer Podcast Network, home to On Shuffle with host Micah Peters, Binge Mode with Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion, The Watch with Andy Greenwald and Chris Ryan, and many more shows besides. And in case you didn't know this, we have written content at TheRinger.com. This week, just in baseball, we have Ben Lindbergh on Lorenzo Kane, Zach Cram on the Orioles deteriorating defense, and Rob Schaefer on the extinction of the lefty one-out guy. And we've got a jam-packed show for you today, starting off with the All-Star Game rosters, which were announced just this weekend. And here to talk about that and much more is Zach Cram. How are you, Zach?
1: I'm okay. How are you
0: doing? You know, I think the All-Star rosters are just okay, too. Um, I guess the obvious place to start is Blake Snell, because it feels like I mean, he's been one of the best pitchers in the American League, and it feels like nobody noticed except for me and Chris Archer. Um, you know, I think if the players had read my article about Blake Snell a couple weeks ago, they would have been more inclined uh, to vote him in rather than, I don't know, Trevor Bauer got got player vote ahead of him. And some of this is some of this is just every team needs a, a roster spot. Like you look at the pitchers who were, who are in there, like Jose Barrios hasn't been as good, but he's the only twin. Uh, Joe Jimenez is, I guess they needed a tiger. And I think, you know, this makes a lot more sense if they put Eddie Rosario on the team, then they can have Snell in and Snell, like the Rays got Wilson Ramos voted in because he's been the only catcher in the American league who has been worth a damn the first half of the season. Uh, so he is just sort of in a weird position as regards the rules but he's the only guy who who really feels like a snub as you know in in the sense that uh, that we usually mean it you know the kind of of snub that you could get up in arms about.
1: Well it's not just Chris Archer I think one of the perhaps not uh, fun for them but one of the more fun things for us as observers on Sunday night was seeing pretty much every member of Tampa's pitching staff. Come to Blake Snell's defense. There was also Brent Honeywell and Jacob Faria, and they, you know, came to to support for their teammate. Justin Verlander even said, like, yes, yeah, Snell probably should have made it. But what's interesting about Snell is first, like you said, it seems like a lot of players didn't notice. But it's also not like they put on somebody who was a terrible choice. Mm -hmm. If you look at the player votes, they put on guys like Garrett Cole, who we all wrote about as having an awesome year, Verlander, Severino, Kluber. like It's not like there's a terrible option on here. Even Snell has led the American League in ERA so far. He has overperformed his peripherals, but it also shouldn't be that complicated. He should be an all-star. He probably will be an all-star. Trevor Bauer at this point is scheduled to start on Sunday, which means he would vacate his roster spot and then Snell would come in as the obvious replacement. Just last year, there were approximately five or six, depending on how you count injury replacements, just in the American League alone. So there's generally room and the rosters widen and expand enough that even if a guy is a snub, he probably ends up making the team anyway.
0: Right, and that's sort of the... That's what I keep rolling back on because in the American League in particular, like, if you're... Every, you know, Mariners fans are mad about James Paxton, for instance, and, you know, just even as a neutral, it feels like James Paxton has had the kind of season that ought to get him into the All-Star game, but you look at... And even Snell, like, I think my argument would be he's been Severino. Like, there's no argument one way or or the other as to whether Snell or Severino has been more effective. And all things being equal, they probably take the Yankee, you know? But I don't know who, and I sort of alluded to this, I don't know who you take off the roster because there have just been so many good pitchers in the American League this year that you're going to miss out on on guys like, uh, on probably at least one of, of Paxton or Snell or Charlie Morton. Um, You know, you look over in the American league that, you know, Max Muncy feels like he's had an all-star type season. Jesus Aguilar uh, feels like he's had an all-star type season and they're on the outside looking in because, you know, Freddie, Freddie Freeman's been great. Joy Votto has been great and they're, you know, and Aguilar and Muncy get relegated to, um, to the final vote. So this year it, it, it's sort of weird in that there doesn't feel like an obvious, this guy shouldn't have made it. Um I guess, except for Salvador Perez, except you look at that, like there's only been one good catcher in the American league this year. I don't know who else you, you really put on, like, do you put Max Stassi in a platoon is the fifth or is, would he be the sixth Astro or, or fifth Astro on, uh, on this all-star team? And I don't know who else you put on, Uh, For the Royals, like, I don't know where the spot is for Whit Merrifield, for instance, or Mike Moustakis. So, you know, it's it's hard to get... Snell is the only guy I've really gotten up in arms about because I don't know who you take off. And this is, to a certain extent, zero sum, at least until you start looking at injury replacements or or guys who start on
1: Sunday. And there has always been a tension between picking guys who might be having quite not not quite as good seasons but are stars like Joey Votto and guys who are having phenomenal first halves like Aguilar and Muncy as you mentioned but I feel like even though someone like Votto made it over Aguilar there are still a lot of first-time candidates who deserve to be on the team this year Miles Mikolas is an example he was pretty bad in the major leagues for a couple years then went and was great in Japan and came back he's having a great season with the Cardinals. Uh, Someone like Nick Markakis, who's been sort of a steady contributor for over a decade now and is having the best season he's ever had. He's an all-star game starter. And even if the fans hadn't voted him in, I'm sure he would have made it as a backup too. So I think there is still enough new blood. The only other tension now is what the Snell debate has kind of boiled down to over the last few days is, does every team deserve an all-star? I'm kind of, I think. Not in the majority here, at least on baseball Twitter. Where yeah,
0: base, I think this is one of those situations because I, I think I'm with you, but this is one of the situations where baseball Twitter just watches too much baseball and sort of doesn't reflect the general public. Because I'm I'm pro one you know one player per team.
1: I agree, and especially with the All Star Game no longer meaning anything; it's just an exhibition at this point. I've seen the argument made over the last few days that well, All Stars at the end of a player's career, determine a player's greatness. But I don't think that's necessarily true. We oh, have I don't think that's true either. so many more sophisticated ways of calculating a player's value, perhaps too much quantification. And if anything, like is the difference between a player making three All-Star games and five All-Star games going to matter at the end of his career? Probably not. Even in awards voting, there are plenty of examples of players who have won MVPs or Cy Young awards without even making the all-star team that season. So I'm not entirely sure outside the player's own perspective. And yeah, I'm sure it sucks for Blake Snell or Gene Segura or someone who probably deserves to be on the team in isn't just because of the one player per team rule. But if the game is supposed to attract fans, the best way to attract a Royals fan to watch the game is to say, hey, here's Salvador Perez batting against the best pitcher in the National League. Or for a Tigers fan, here's Joe Jimenez pitching against, I don't know, Bryce Harper. Uh, that's the best way to attract a national fan base for this game.
0: And I think one thing we we don't understand, like the more jaded, you know, you get very jaded, very quanti people the kind of people that that we sort of hang out with uh watch so much baseball and you know there's sort of a this is the all-star game sort of stupid but it's not for us it's for casual fans and kids and i remember being a you know in a being a child god before you were probably even born um rooting for a pretty bad Phillies team that often has not only had one all star a year, you know, this is before the internet didn't have cable. So I would only see the Phillies. I wouldn't see West coast players or, or American league players, except for the one national game a week, the entire season. So it was cool to see somebody from the Royals or somebody from the Brewers when they were in the American league. You know, I remember vividly Jose Rosado making his, his one all star team. And you know, it's to expose those kind of fans to players they might not see every day. And I think that there's a balance to, you know, you talk about the the Muncie versus Vado thing or the Aguilar versus Vado thing. Like, there's a, I sort of come in in the middle that, like, you should recognize up-and-coming players, even sort of fluky-sounding players, because I remember when Jose Bautista was kind of a fluky all-star after a good first half, and he turned into a superstar, uh, you know, even as a late bloomer. So, there's an argument for you tune in to see, you know, if you look at Kluber versus Snell, the Cy Young winner versus the up-and-coming pitcher, you tune in to see the Cy Young award winner, and maybe you're exposed to an up-and-coming player who you become interested in and want to watch more Rays games, God help you, this season. But you know there's uh, you'd want i would want to have some up and coming stars and some established stars like i think there's a balance that that you'd want to strike and i think that you know we might be too close to this to really evaluate the all star game rosters from a you know from a uh, standpoint of of what the target audience really wants cuz we aren't that target audience
1: right and i think if anything it shows just how much talent there is in baseball at this point the fact particularly that this year this they, is
0: uh, yeah like this uh, there's 10 guys I'd I'd want to have for uh for either of these rosters that, for every guy who I think doesn't deserve to be there
1: right I, I don't think ERA is the end-all be-all but James Paxson who probably is an all-star in most seasons ranks 15th just in the American League in ERA and I picked James Paxson to win the Cy Young before the season and he's Pitch really well, but he almost has no chance just because of how great some of the players we've seen now are and how young a lot of them are. Yes, Justin Verlander's at the top of that leaderboard, but so is Snell and Severino and Bauer and Tyler Skaggs. And there are just a lot of great baseball players right now, and that's fun for both of us. But as you say, it's a matter of how to introduce that to a national audience during basically the only time between April and October that there is this sort of mm-hmm. national interest in not a, not a, just a single game, but a, a few days of baseball.
0: And Paxton feels, and I feel bad for Paxton because he's probably not there on the numbers, but he is perhaps more than any other player, the, the narrative focus of one of the great surprise stories, like a, a surprisingly really good team that has really flown under the radar the past couple seasons. And Paxton, you know, with the no-hitter and and some of the, you know, where you strike out 16 guys in a game, a start or two before that, he's he's put up some of those big memorable Mariners games. And he's probably the face of that team right now. And it feels like he ought to be there just for no other purpose than to introduce him to fans before the wildcard game. And 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 Segura, too, like he's as of right now, Segura is leading the final vote. And I think he'd be the guy I would take out of the American League first because I think he's a super exciting player who has relatively little uh, national name recognition. He would be the kind of player I would want to introduce to fans uh, at a game like this. But, you know, he's had a great season and I, you know, I think there can't there's no amount of Mariners exposure, I think, uh, would be too
1: much at this point. And if anything, the fact that there are other opportunities for these players to make uh, an all-star appearance, whether it's in the game itself because of injury replacement or in the festivities at large, like Max Muncie is, I think, the first confirmed contestant in the home run derby, which is great fun. The transition in format a couple years ago where they went to a timed bracket mm-hmm. has made it a lot more exciting. It's great now. It's, I, I never it was expected. unwatchable
0: five years ago. It's awesome. I never expected
1: to like the home run derby like I do now. Uh, But it's as you say, it's so much more fun than it used to be. And sure, maybe Max Muncie makes a run in the home run derby and people learn his name before he inevitably hits like 455 for the Dodgers in October. Uh, I do think if I were to make a change to the all-star format, it would be to add more of these skills competitions to let more of these Maybe second tier players shine and mm-hmm. make a name for themselves, but and I that's, think that's an argument that's something that something the have been NBA does a lot of, Yeah,
0: yeah. Like, and it's tough because I don't know what the other. I remember at Grantland. We had uh, it might have been a group post where we proposed like other skills competitions. I don't know what else you'd do is the thing because like what you'd want to see like fastest pitch or or um, some kind of like a race around the bases or something like that. Like the the risk of injury is too great that you'd have a hard time, like even if the players wanted to compete, like the teams would never, would never allow something like a fastest pitch competition. So I'd like to see it. I just don't know what the, um, I don't, I like, I don't know what the event would look like.
1: I think a fastest man around the bases is a possibility. Uh, sure. Maybe it's a slightly increased injury risk, but it's not like Billy Hamilton isn't, sprinting around the bases all the time anyway. And I, the other one that intrigues me is maybe too nerdy to actually work for a wide audience, but I want some sort of pitching accuracy competition because with fastest pitch, we have the ability with Radar and uh, StatCast to just know that Jordan Hicks and the Chapman throw the fastest pitches. I want some sort of like NHL-style competition where they have... Little plates or targets mm-hmm. of some kind over parts of the strike zone, and you have to hit the target, and you'll have the fun of plates exploding into a million pieces for an hour. I don't know. I think that's that could work. A I like that. That would work.
0: Yeah, and that's that's fun in the NHL too, because occasionally you'll see a guy uh, just whiff, and like I think it happened to Drew Dowdy last last uh, NHL All Star game where it took him like two minutes to to hit all five targets. Um, here's one thing I want to see for the All Star game. You know, like the Tour de France is on right now and cycling is really the only sport that that does this. But like, I want to see players get like some sort of uniform patch for like winning awards or making all-star teams. Like, you know, sort of like how military uniforms, you wear your resume on your, on your uniform. Like you ought to get a star on your jersey for every all-star team you make or, uh, you know, a patch for every MVP or Cy Young or batting title or home run title. Like I think it it would be cool to see that kind of, it would never happen in baseball. Like never, because it's just so individually focused. But like, you know, at the baseball references started doing that thing where they put it just in the top right corner of the player's page. He's won two World Series and an ALCS MVP and an an AL MVP and a batting title and three gold gloves. Like, it would be cool to see that reflected on the the jersey in, in some way, even though it's something I've wanted for a long time, but I know it'll never happen.
1: The other idea, because the All-Star game is just an exhibition now, is just to be more fantastical with your ideas and put guys in unique positions. And I don't think that would ever happen again just because teams are stodgy and would say, oh, if we play a guy in second at second base and he's never played second the base The Russell before. Martin shortstop thing that, R- exactly. that he finally
0: did this year after wanting to do it forever.
1: Just put Williams Estudio yeah. in the All-Star game and have him play every position. Well, we should do that anyway
0: well i mean like if we were in control of this williams santiago would be uh would be one of the starters
1: and the other idea is just to take advantage of sort of this gap between uh nostalgia and in the moment stars and try and bridge that with It wouldn't work every year, but like when Derek Jeter or Mariano Rivera or Cal Ripken had their final All Star games, like those are some of the moments I remember as a baseball fan watching them and trying to take advantage of that when the opportunities present themselves. I think baseball has generally done a good job with that, but like, I don't know, I really want to see Ichiro in the home run derby. I know this was bandied about a week or two ago uh, with the Mariners talking about it. It's definitely not going to happen because Major League Baseball wouldn't do that. But there's nothing that would get me to tune in more than to see Ichiro hit homers. And they and MLPs, to their credit, they're doing and they pioneered a lot of stuff. I don't you're
0: probably too young to remember the catcher cam where they had the cameras and the catcher's masks. Um that that got pioneered at, at the all-star game. You know, they have the uh the special, and nowadays they have the special catcher's gear, uh, they let uh relax the rules for what kind of cleats you can wear. So, you know, Mike Trout always has special cleats for the All-Star game. This dates back to even A-Rod would wear white cleats for the All-Star game when he was with the Yankees. And it's just little things like that. The uh, miking up an outfielder and interviewing him during the game. George Springer did that, I think, last year, and it was incredible. And, I don't know, incredible is probably too strong a word, but it was really nice. Like, it's it's fun to, to do that during the game. And I think you know, as much as I'd like MLB to go one step farther, they do. I think they do a really good job within the the confines of, of norms in terms of making. You know, going from this time it counts to to just you know having fun with it.
1: Yeah, even uh, I think it was spring training this year. Mookie Betts was miked up during a game. Oh and, yeah, that was yeah, awesome. Someone hit the ball over his head, and as he was chasing it down, he said, "Yeah, I'm not going to get to this one, boys." Oh, there you go. Uh-oh. I ain't getting this one, boys. Get on your horse. Don't miss the cutoff.
0: I ain't getting this
1: one, boys. Making things like that a part of the All-Star experience. Last year, Nelson Cruz took the picture at home plate. Mm -hmm. Uh, Understanding that it's an event for fun and for fans, as opposed to, like, you know, discount so much and it determines the home field advantage was a bad idea that persisted far too long and I do appreciate the steps they're taking.
0: Yeah, everything and some of this happens organically like you know you see in the in the home run derby you know somebody's always bringing out towels and Gatorade to you know during the timeout to uh to whoever's at the um at the plate in this states back you know David Ortiz acting like everybody's cut man uh, a couple years ago and I think it, there's, as like I said, as much as I'd like them to do more, I think that they are having fun with it in a way that I think is really good right now.
1: Yeah. And I'm looking, I'm looking forward to this week. I'm one of the weirdos who watches all nine innings of every All Star game, Me no matter too. who's yeah. playing. And I, you know, I just think it's fun to see, even in the eighth inning, like Josh Hader against insert backup American League outfielder here, they're still all good players, and I enjoy watching baseball, and I enjoy that we have this opportunity every year.
0: Yeah, and it's, like I said, it's easy to be jaded. You know, I don't begrudge beat writers who are in the clubhouse six days a week for six months uh, if they're, you know, if they're jaded about making one extra trip for not, you know, to write about something trivial, but, you know... Sort of taking a step back for for people like us and sort of viewing this through a casual fan's eyes, I think is it's a really it's a healthy thing to do for for hardcore baseball fans. So I'm looking forward to it. I always look forward to the All Star Game, and it's it's just you know it's it does sort of feel like last day of school, and that's always a, a nice feeling. And I always enjoy looking forward to talking to you, Michael. All right, yeah, you're an All Star in my heart, Zach Cram. So we'll we'll talk. I guess uh, we're going to be recording day of the All Star Game next week, so uh, we'll. I don't know if we'll have that much discussion about the game, but we'll we'll touch on this maybe the home run derby stuff like that. So, all right, we'll I'll talk to you next week. Perfect. Thanks again to Zach. We'll be right back with Ben Lindbergh after a word from our sponsors. Are you struggling to get to sleep? If so, the fine people at Mattress Firm want to help. Mattress Firm is here for you when you're looking for ways to improve your sleep. These are mattress experts here, people. And they're not just mattress experts, they can help you build your bed from headboards to adjustable bases to sheets. And they even have bedroom decor. They've got you covered literally and figuratively. Plus, if you go to slash podcast, you can save 10% with the code PODCAST10. Mattress Firm offers 120 night sleep trials so you can rest assured that you love your mattress or your money back. And- and they have a 120-night low price guarantee, so you know you paid the perfect price. More than 3,000 stores nationwide, not only are they in your backyard, but this means they have the ability to offer you deals that nobody else can. And that's on top of the 10% savings you'll already cash in on. So go to mattressfirm.com podcast and start sleeping better tonight. Today's episode of The Ringer MLB Show is also brought to you by Miller Lite. Look, here at The Ringer, we spend most of our time arguing. Just today, I had an argument with a coworker about whether it's good to put ketchup in soup. But one thing there's no debate about is that Miller Lite is the great tasting light beer. With only 96 calories and 3.2 grams of carbs, that's fewer calories and half the carbs of Bud Light, so there's really nothing more to talk about. If you have a real argument, let me hear it. Until then, stick with Miller Lite. Miller Lite, hold true. Well, as always, we end the show with our closer, Ben Lindbergh, who is on today to talk about teams on 50 win paces that if you have a mouthful of peanut butter, their names sort of sound alike, the Orioles (laughs) and the Royals. So, Ben, they say that that baseball is mostly failure, and I am happy to have you on to talk about that, (laughs) to indulge that uh, in a very specific way this week.
2: Yes, we are here to talk about two truly terrible baseball teams, the Royals and the Orioles. I don't know which is worse, but they are in a pretty exciting race to the bottom right now.
0: Well, I've got, well, the first thing is I was making jokes about how they were on, like they were going to challenge the 62 Mets. If anything, Mm -hmm. these two teams really drive home how bad the 62 Mets were. Yes. Because uh, I, I looked up, you know, the Mets went 40 and 120 in their in their first season, and neither of these teams, as bad as they are, as like they could be the worst teams since the full tank era of the process Astros, right?
2: Yeah. And yeah. Dan Symborski actually has a post up at FanGrass on Tuesday about this very issue their chances of catching up to the 1962 Mets and. I think both teams have a sub one percent chance of actually getting there right now. That's pre trade deadline, of right. course, but still, yeah, the the sixty two Mets are kind of in their own class when it comes to awfulness.
0: Well, you talked about um, about the trade deadline. I was looking, and which team was worse? This is uh, what I was going to bring up, and. They can't really. The, the Royals would be my pick because they can't really get that much horse. There's talk about, uh, you know, Mike Moustakas' trade rumors are sort of floating around. I don't know how serious they are. There are some pretty serious links between Whit Merrifield, former Gamecock, and the Phillies uh, earlier in the week. And apart from that, there's not, like, you look at their team, they've already traded uh, John Jay and Calvin Herrera. Uh, Jorge Soler, who's been their, probably their best hitter this year, is hurt. Uh, they've got some Pitchers who were good recently uh, mm-hmm. in Jake Junis, uh, Danny Duffy and Ian Kennedy, and they've all been bad and Kennedy and Junis are hurt. So I don't know what more they can trade from to get worse. Like Whit Merrifield's a really good player and would be really useful on a contender, but he's not going to swing this team. You know, it's, he's not the difference between this being a 45 win team and a 51 team.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. The Orioles probably have room to get even worse than they currently are. Although I will say that I'm not totally clear on how we got to this point that we're talking about these two teams as two of the worst ever because I didn't see this coming. I think we all expected them to be bad and not contending. But I didn't see historic terribleness coming here. I mean, if you just go back and look at the preseason projections, I think the Tigers were expected to be worse. The White Sox were expected to be worse. Are you telling me that Dakota
0: whiffed on the Royals?
2: (laughs) Yeah, in the other direction, though, this time. And I think there were a bunch of teams that were either kind of in the region of these two teams or even worse. And for some reason, these two teams have really separated themselves. And if you look at it, I think there are... Some surprising reasons for that. I mean, no one thought Chris Davis was great, but no one thought he was going to have one of the worst seasons ever. I don't think anyone thought Jonathan Scope was going to go from being a five-win player to a replacement-level player. Remember when we briefly thought Tim Beckham might be good for yeah, a while I, about it. I was yeah. convinced. I
0: thought he'd turn <laughs> yeah.
2: No, it was pretty convincing. So much for that. And then Alex Cobb, of course, was the the big flagship signing of the Orioles' offseason. And no one thought that was a wise move, I don't think. But no one thought that he was about to be a replacement-level pitcher either. And and the Royals, I think, have some guys like that. I, I guess, you know, as bad as we all thought that Alcides Escobar was, no one thought he was a 195 hitter because he's never been a 195 hitter before. And so as Zach Cram has Chronicled the Orioles maybe have one of the worst defenses of all time. Just everything has gone wrong. And if you look at some of the wonky stats that tell us how good teams should be based on their underlying performance— both of these teams are underperforming their base runs record by four or five wins. Now, even if you gave them those yeah, wins. that's <laughs> great. The Sixty-two. The I looked this
0: up. The 62 right. Mets underperformed their Pythag by 10 wins. Like, yeah.
2: <laughs> so dude, cool.
0: That's awesome.
2: <laughs> there's only so much difference it would make. But that's what I'm saying. And the other thing is that these two teams, I think there's maybe a tendency to kind of lump them in with some other teams that are tanking and or rebuilding or tearing down, whatever you want to call it. These teams are kind of old school sucking. Like they're just, yeah, they, reached they were stuck the for a their, while. Yeah. They reached like, the
0: end of their cycle and it all right. came crashing down.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Over the past four seasons, the Orioles and the Royals improbably were tied for the sixth most wins in the majors and the second most wins behind the Indians this in the majors. This was the League.
0: ALCS. Like, Three, right. or three In, years, yeah, ago or years ago four
2: years ago? Yeah, four yeah. years ago. So these teams were good, and now they're bad, and that's what happens. The Royals lost a lot of free agents, and the Orioles just really haven't acquired young talent and just haven't made the moves that they should make. But this is something that teams have historically gone through. This isn't like the White Sox being bad because they traded everyone. This is just kind of the natural last gasp of formerly good teams.
0: Yeah, and they, you said old school, and— there is something, you know what, there I think there is something admirable about the about the royal sort of seeing this coming and saying, "Well, we're just going to take our one last remote shot instead yeah. of trading Hosmer and Kane and Mustakas last year." Yeah. Um it, you know, and there's sort of a weird developmental program that you know, there is no weirder scouting and developmental program <laughs> out there than the Orioles. So they, no. you know, it, this is just what happens when you don't develop a pitcher for 20 years.
2: Yeah. Sign um, one international free agent, maybe. Exactly. As talk to us.
0: Um, but the, I, I didn't see this coming with the, with the Orioles. I thought they were just sort of a, a run of the mill 65, 71 team coming mm-hmm. into the season with the Royals. I think I saw this, this potential just because there's this, they're, their players. A lot of their players coming into the season, uh, didn't have a lot of upside, and I think we mistake not having upside for also not having a low floor. Um, yeah. And they, you know, they're experiencing the um, the side effects of this. The other thing is they're kind of being floated by a really shit ass division, and as shit ass yes, as this team has, has been, <laughs> like this could they have a winning record against the Tigers or five hundred against the um, against Minnesota Twins? I know you've been interested in the trajectory of the AL Central as a whole, yeah. and yeah, you know, I think back to 2003 Orioles who were a surprising wild card contender because they beat up on the what was a hundred and how many games did the Tigers lose that year 119 was it that close to yeah what were they like a 48 win team or something, something like, like that, that. Yeah. Was, they the one they lost somewhere in the the high one teens and the Royals went I think 16 and three against them and almost made the playoffs as a result and uh it, you know this is sort of the opposite of that where the low quality of the division is Well, no, it's not the opposite. They're just at the other end of the standings. It's the Mm -hmm. low quality of, of some of their competition is sort of keeping them from really challenging that uh, that sixty-two Mets record. If they were in the West, like, we might be talking about this.
2: Yeah, I overrated those two thousand three Tigers. By the way, forty-three and one hundred and nineteen.
0: I was going to say, I remember there, <laughs> Mike Maroth and Jeremy Bonderman. You know, it, there's a there's a uh, an alternate universe where that season doesn't just completely ruin Jeremy Bonderman. He <laughs> you know becomes a, a multiple All Star. <laughs> um, Jeremy
2: Bonderman, alternate history. Did not yeah. think we would be talking about that. Yeah,
0: we, t- we talk about everything.
2: <laughs> yeah, you're right. I wrote a couple of weeks ago about how this AL Central might be the worst division ever and obviously the Royals are a big part of that so they're not just innocent bystanders to this crash but you're right they would be even worse if they were facing good teams on a regular basis and maybe that's part of it like there are some super teams in the AL certainly and so if you have to face the Astros and the Red Sox and well I'm not quite going to put the Mariners or the A's in that category but maybe the Indians. They're they're
0: one in five against the Astros Mm -hmm. uh, Red Sox and Mariners Uh
2: uh-huh yeah so you know there are some really good teams that will beat up on the really bad teams but even so no I didn't quite see this coming for either of these teams but now you have to wonder just how much worse it can get in the second half and maybe there's some regression coming in that they're probably not quite this bad but on the other hand they probably are going to strip down whatever is useful <laughs> remaining on these rosters which is not much at least in the royals case but i know that you have thoughts on whether that will actually happen
0: yeah i well let's let's go to baltimore cuz i mean they're not the Orioles so much as they're the fight and manny machado trade rumors right um and this is it's almost overpowered the the rest of of the season in terms of a national narrative, because there's this perception that this weird perception that bad teams sort of owe it to the game to like there's we take a we uh, I don't but people take offense when bad teams have one really good player and don't just trade him to to whoever and this is a a really complicated situation because Machado's about to be a free agent I find it highly unlikely he'll resign in Baltimore yes. and a lot of. So they got to get something for him. They probably held on to him at least a couple months too long, probably (laughs) a full season too long. (laughs) Yeah. And now we're in a, in a situation where the, if you're looking at this from the Orioles perspective, where like, this is your best position player since Cal Ripken, like, Mm -hmm. you know, unless I'm forgetting somebody, Uh, they can't just let him walk for, you know, I'm just look, I just went through MLB trade rumors and got some of the highlights. Uh, they want Dustin May and, and Kiebert Ruiz from LA, but don't know if they're going to get him. That's from Bob Nightingale. Jerry Krasnick says Brett Phillips could be the the centerpiece of a Brewers Orioles trade for Machado. Like that's Brett Phillips is fine, but he's leftovers in that system. Like mm-hmm. this is not Corbin Burns. This is not Keston Hura, and I don't know how they get him. Like they're in a situation where they can't trade Machado for Brett Phillips or even. You know, Zach Eflin, I had a specific argument about him over the weekend that is just driving me nuts because, you know, so I'm not a, I I was a local Philly writer back when, uh, back when they were starting to think about trading Cole Hamels in 2012 and 13. And there was this sort of same national outrage that they didn't just dump him for whoever. And there were outrageous takes, mostly from Red Sox fans and writers. Like why you know why don't the I don't know if I'd trade Blake Swihart for for Hamill straight up and there's sort of the same thing coming from Phillies fans now about Zach Eflin and the beat writers are saying the Phillies wouldn't trade Zach Eflin who's had nine good starts in his entire career for Machado who is one of the best players in baseball and there's you know I, I got an argument from a friend of mine who's who said according to baseball reference war that Zach Eflin is better than Machado this year. And like, if you cherry pick, (laughs) if you ignore all of human history, except for Zach Eflin's last 11 starts and, and and cherry pick the war version that is most favorable to Eflin and least favorable to to Machado, then yeah, maybe they even out, but like, this is not a rental. You know, Josh Reddick to the Dodgers a couple years ago was a rental. This is a superstar, and I think there's some non-certain but also non-trivial advantage to having him come to the team and play down the stretch, get to know the city, and maybe that gives you some sort of advantage. There's definitely an exclusive negotiating window if you want to try to to um, to sign him to a long-term extension. Like, it's outrageous that the Orioles wouldn't ask for more than you know, than Zach Eflin or Brett Phillips, but what, but it also doesn't make sense for a team, particularly a big market team, like the Dodgers or the Phillies that would have a a shot at signing him for free. Uh, in terms of prospects in the offseason, like, it doesn't make sense for the Dodgers to give up Alex Verdugo. It doesn't make sense for the Phillies to give up Sixto Sanchez. And so we're in a position where I think the most rat, like, we could prisoner dilemma, prisoner's dilemma ourselves into the Orioles holding on to Machado toward all the way to the end of the season, which I know we talked about this earlier. You don't think they're necessarily going to do. But, like, it doesn't make sense. It's just... I, if I were the Orioles, I wouldn't take some insulting, oh, it's better than the comp pick. Cause fuck you. Like, this is, <laughs> this is the best player we've had. This is the best star we've had in 20 years. I'm not going to give him up for just because you don't, just because you're certain you're going to sign him in the offseason. You know, and he's the kind of player who could make, a significant impact down the stretch. The Manny Ramirez in 2008 impact. Like, he's that good and he could be incredibly valuable to a team down the stretch. So the Orioles are absolutely right to hold out for whatever they think they ought to get. And you know what? If they don't get the big return, they were going to be bad for the next five years anyway. So who gives a crap? Okay. I haven't done one of these in a while. I realize I've been yelling for a long time.
2: I'm on your side in the great Machado versus Eflin debate of our times. So I'll be your ally in that fight. But I'll say that if the Orioles really want wanted to get something good for Machado, they should have traded him when he was more valuable, when he had absolutely. more value So I, I absolutely the, agree with you. If they end up in the situation where they just get Brett Phillips back, it's really their own fault for holding on to him this long for no particular reason. I mean, we've been reading many Machado trade rumors for months, years now. All the MLB trade rumors posts blend together, but it's been a long time. There was a chance that he would have been traded this past winter, and the Orioles, it seemed like, possibly had unrealistic expectations expectations for what they'd receive in return. Maybe they still do, but they had no chance to compete coming into this season. So there was no great value to retaining Manny Machado. And I'm sure that they had better offers then than they're getting now. So if they really wanted to get something for him, then pull the trigger a little sooner. Don't wait until you have two months remaining on this guy that you've had for years and years. So I get it. Like, there's no way to really sell it to a fan base. I mean, our dear colleague Mallory Rubin, she's not going to be happy when she Nani refused to traded. come on this
0: podcast. I asked her. I asked her if she wanted to talk about this, and she yeah. said no. I don't know. If there, so, I don't know if
2: there is a prospect package that the Orioles could reasonably get back right now that would kind of ease the pain of losing the face of the franchise and one of the best players in franchise history. So I get that. But at the same time, we're talking about this team that's heading into the abyss that's already there and there's just no light at the end of the tunnel. So if you want to get out of this morass that they find themselves in You've got to trade Machado for what you can get, and it's just not going to make any difference really, not only to your chances of contending. They're, what, 40 games back almost at this point, but it's not going to make the Orioles that much more watchable even to have Manny Machado down the stretch. I mean, he's already like dogging ground balls, right, which I don't blame him for because why would he go all out for this team at this time when he has his Mm -hmm. free agency coming up? So. I think you've got to get rid of him. I think they will. I mean, nothing would shock me about the Orioles' management or mismanagement at this point. So if they held on to him, it wouldn't be the most surprising decision ever. But I think it would be yet another example of malpractice. And I think they'll get something good just because there are a lot of teams interested. But, you know, you're talking about two months of the regular season and the way that baseball is structured in 2018. There aren't that many teams that are really fighting for a playoff spot, at least in the AL. You kind of either have one or you don't. So you're talking about upgrading for the playoffs in many cases and a third baseman, a shortstop. I mean, it's great to have a player like Manny Machado. He's a superstar, but you don't get the premium at the deadline for a player like that, that I think you do for a pitcher whose use you can really ramp up in October. So I just think you kind of have to have realistic expectations about what even a superstar is worth with two to three months left.
0: Yeah, here's my counter argument. That even if they get somebody like, you know, Dustin May, Jeff Paternostro from BP is really high on Dustin May and calls him ginger guard, which I find incredibly <laughs> charming. But even that kind of player is not going to do much for the rebuild. Like, I mean, it's it's, it's not an insignificant get, but like this, is, this team is not one Dustin May from no. turning it around. They're so the far from years.
2: being good that you could say that about almost and anything I, they get back. I, like exactly. it's a drop in the bucket.
0: And if it's not like, you know, Zach and I were talking last week about potential DeGrom packages and, like, with uh, years of control left, like, that could turn around a... You know, something that you could get for a DeGrom or Cindergarten trade could could turn around the team, but, you know, this is not... I, I'm not delusional. Like, I don't think they're gonna get Keston here and Corbin Burns and three other prospects for, for two months uh, of Manny Machado. But, like... It's we owe it as fans and writers. And here I am back up on the soap <laughs> soapbox breathing heavy again. But it, we owe it as fans and writers to sort of to not take this fetishization of years of control. Because, like, you think back to the Garrett Cole trade, like, oh, what the Pirates were after was just so many years of control from Moran and Musgrove and and uh and Feliz. <clears throat> and what they gave up is one of the best pitchers in the American League. Yeah. And like. What you're getting back is, yeah, there's not many years of control, but there's Manny Machado. Like, he's the -the middle-of-the-order hitter and one of the best defensive third basemen in baseball if you can convince him to play there. And if not, then he's a middle-of-the-order hitter at a premium defensive position. So, like, we just need to stop, like, stop thinking like private school NBA dipshits and recognize that, like, this is a hugely impactful player. It's a huge statement to the fans, particularly if you're a team like the Brewers that's chasing postseason success. Think of you know think about what uh, what the CC Sabathia trade did there a decade ago, what the David Price trade did in, in Toronto. It, like the way that you could galvanize public support by your, by your team. Like for it's not worth any prospect in baseball, but it's worth most prospects in baseball when you think about the impact he could have on a playoff series. Mm-hmm. So if If nothing else, if I were the Orioles, I would hold out till the very end just to see if I could get one sucker to blink. Mm-hmm. you know, because you only need one, you owe it to yourself to make sure that there's, if you're going to make a trade, make absolutely sure that there's not a better trade available. And I say this knowing that I would have traded him two years ago if I were Dan Ducat. Right. Yeah, but, I mean,
2: you brought up the Pirates and it was debatable whether the Pirates were doomed. It's not debatable that the Orioles are doomed. So the Pirates didn't necessarily have to make that move. They had Gary Cole, they had Andrew McCutcheon, they were pretty decent. They could have contended potentially, and it seemed like they traded some stars for some decent guys because they could control them for years to come. For The Orioles, I think that having some decent guys you could control for years to come, that's kind of a win for them just because I mean, having non replacement level players at a few positions, but what does that
0: get you like that's yeah, like, I, I mean, could, you know, we should ask Mal about this, but mm-hmm. like, is a 52 win team that much more painful than a 70 win team you know isn't going anywhere for the next, yeah, you know, for, well, for the next kinda, five years? That's like, the is,
2: central debate about the whole tanking rebuilding and this is thing, why, right? Even which though is, tanking yeah. goes
0: against everything I believe in from From an economic and sports standpoint, as a Sixers fan, I was on board with the process from day one because the team wasn't quite as bad, but it wasn't going anywhere.
2: Yeah, right. So There's a a benefit to being truly terrible as opposed to just kind of hanging in there the way that the mediocre White Sox were for year after year, not making the playoffs, but just not being embarrassing either. The Orioles are (laughs) embarrassing, but they're not really doing it for a purpose, at least up to this point. They're just bad with no hope to come. Old school bad. Yes, exactly
0: right all right we're out of time I could scream at you about <laughs> this for for I don't know the next several hours but yeah we'll have we gotta let you go, more opportunities
2: so, to talk about yeah. Manny Machado in the weeks to come
0: maybe he won't get traded next week and we'll be able to shout about this again right. this was fun yeah. let's do it again my pleasure That will just about do it for this week's episode of The Ringer MLB Show. Thanks, as always, to Zach Cram and Ben Lindbergh for coming on. Thanks to Blake Snell, Trevor Bauer, Whit Merrifield, and Manny Machado for providing content for us to discuss. And I meant to bring this up during Ben's segment, but congratulations to Ben's beloved Davidson baseball Wildcats. They hired a new pitching coach today. South Carolina legend Parker Bangs will be Davidson's new pitching coach. So congratulations to him. Congratulations to Ben uh, on a great hire by his beloved Davidson Wildcats thanks to Jim Cunningham for producing today's episode and thanks to you for listening enjoy the games and we'll see you next time